Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. My name is Jamil Jaffer. I'm the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anderson Scalia Law School. NSI was founded about three years ago to fill a significant gap in academia by standing up for an America, a robust American national security policy and providing realistic and actionable recommendations to policymakers. To achieve that goal, this year we're focused on two of the most pressing issues in national security today, countering China's rise and preserving U.S. technology innovation and leadership. Today we're continuing that conversation about confronting China's challenge to the new world order. As you all know, China's economic manipulation has grown over the last decade, dominating the export market and building frameworks like the Belt and Road Initiative to expand its influence. The outgoing administration did much to highlight this issue, but there's continued debate about how best to combat China's rise in the economic and national security sectors. The incoming Biden-Harris administration and Congress have got to think about how to counter China's economic statecraft and how to protect, best protect U.S. national security interests. To discuss that issue today and how China's rise impacts the U.S. and our allies in the global marketplace, we're excited to have with us three amazing leaders. Kylie Atwood, national security correspondent for CNN, is based in Washington, D.C. Since joining CNN in 2019, Kylie's report on developments in U.S. national security including uh, including uh, Russia, Afghanistan, China, and Mexico. Kylie was included in Crane's News Pro's 12 to Watch in the new, in TV news. And prior to joining CNN, she was CBS's News' State Department reporter. Ryan Haas is a fellow in the Michael Armacost Chair in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution, where he holds a joint appointment in the John L. Thornton China Center and the Center for East Asia Policy Studies. He's also the interim Chen Fu and Celia, Celia Yen Ku Chair in Taiwan Studies. Ryan focuses research and analysis on enhancing policy development on the pressing political and economic security challenges facing the U.S. and East Asia. From 2013 to 2017, Ryan serves as the director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia at the National Security, on the National Security Council staff. And last but certainly not least, Ambassador Kurt Tong is a partner at the Asia Group, where he leads the firm's work in Japan and the broader East Asia region. A leading expert in diplomacy and economic affairs in East Asia, Ambassador Tong served for three decades in the State Department as a career foreign service officer and a member of the senior foreign service. Most recently, Ambassador Tong served as Consul General and Chief of Mission in Hong Kong and Macau from 2016 to 2019, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau Economic and Business Affairs at the State Department for, from 14 to 16, and as Deputy Chief of Mission in Charge at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo from 2011-2014. Prior to his positions, Ambassador Tong served as Ambassador uh, to APEC in 2011 and led the U.S. Chairmanship of the organization during the most productive periods in APEC's history. I'd, I'd like to thank Kylie, Ryan, and Ambassador Tong for joining us. Kylie, it's all yours. Take it away. Thank you so much. Um, it is wonderful to be here, and I uh, think we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm also uh, grateful for the fact that um, we're going to dive right in this morning. I think we've um, all uh, been through the windstorm of Washington um, Zoom conversations over the last few months, so why don't we just go right to the heart of it? Um, Ambassador Tong and Ryan Haas, it's uh, great to be here with you guys. I am wondering... Um, as we look forward to an incoming Biden team, we know it's going to take them a while to fully form their China policy. That is to be expected. But what can they do right out of the gates in the first month or two to set the tone on what their policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis China will be? Um, Ryan, you're shaking your head. So let's start with you. Well, Kylie, thank you uh, for the question. And Jamil, thank you for bringing us together. Uh, it's really, it's my honor to be with you guys. To 
get at your question, Kylie, I, I have a somewhat counterintuitive view, which is that the United States doesn't need to be in a rush to reset the relationship with China. What it needs to be doing is working to restore leverage for dealing with China. And there are a few ways that I would encourage us to think about that. Uh, the first is it will help uh, the more that the United States is able to demonstrate capacity for self-correction uh, on domestic challenges that we confront. There is a view that is taking root in Beijing that the United States is losing its capacity for renewal and, and self-correction. I would love to see us uh, prove those views wrong. Uh, secondly, I think that uh, it will help us to restore our international prestige if we're seen as uh, being able to make progress on, on thorny domestic issues, but also on knitting together uh, uh, a collective effort for dealing with some of the transnational problems that we confront, whether it be climate change, COVID-19, uh, vaccine distribution, et cetera. And then related to that, uh, I think that uh, an early priority of the Biden administration will be to strengthen cohesion with allies and partners, uh, getting all of us on the same page. Uh, the more that we were able to do that, uh, I think the stronger position we will be in to deal with China. Ambassador Tong. So I'm going to disappoint you and everybody by like completely agreeing with Ryan. So I realize that that is a boring thing to do at the beginning of a webinar, but, but maybe I'll elaborate on it a bit. I don't think it's the responsibility of the United States to try and set a specific tone with China and tone is, is a tactical consideration rather than, a strategy. Um, just as for the reasons that Ryan cited, the, the need to prioritize um, domestic COVID response and economic recovery in the background, there's also a good reason to not have China policy driving the uh, or creating a sense of urgency that th there is an issue that the U.S. immediately needs to do something about with respect to China. The Trump administration's done quite a bit. Some of it was useful, some of it not, not so useful. Um, but I think that the, the, the first half of 2021 can actually be used best to, as Ryan said, um, rebuild relationships with like-minded countries and prepare for a very long, decades-long effort to deal with, with China's rise. Um, so there's no urgency. Like the last thing that we need is like high level meetings with China where there's lots of positioning going on and expectations being raised for, for quick delivery on problems that are um, basically are, are structural in nature and, and long lasting. Um, if I could give just one more bit of background to that, I think the, one of the key things is to frame this whole challenge uh, properly because there are, you know, there's, there's this, these debating schools of thought about what to do about China. So, and one of their, and they tend to center around two questions. Can the rest of the world change China? And um, does China want to change the rest of the world? And the answer to both of them is, is, is kind of a midpoint type answer. What I mean by that is can, can, China be changed by the rest of the world slowly, difficultly, and most things that China changes a lot. It's a very dynamic place, but generally based on domestic prerogatives. So having that in mind and framing expectations based upon that is, is job one. Does China want to change the world? Not really. 
but does it want to follow the the rules of the rest of the world? No. And so the challenge is actually that reinforces the importance of the United States getting together with like-minded pals around the world and coming up with ways to reinforce the global structure uh, to make it uh, immune to China's attempts to undermine it and to make China pay the costs when it, when it attempts to do so. So that's the kind of structure that I think needs to be put in place. That's gonna take time and it's gonna take patience. And I don't think that there's a need for uh, the United States to go chasing, the, chasing after the panda right away. That's helpful. Um, one thing that I'm interested um, for you to expand on a little bit is you said that slowly um, the rest of the world can change China. Um, just for you know, sake of this conversation, are there any examples that you would offer up um, to show how China has indeed changed due to pressure from the world, um, either during the Obama administration or over uh, recent years during the Trump administration? Uh, during the Trump administration, it's more difficult to come up with examples because China's been vectoring in a, in a negative direction from the perspective of the United States quite, quite severely. Um, and so any signs of, uh, essentially the chore is for to uh, try and coerce, convince, entice China into becoming less different from the rest of the world in terms of how it operates its economy first and foremost, and also how it operates its government, secondary, I think, and, and therefore allow it to participate in the global system in ways that are not disruptive. The, the, all of the, the strictures, the, China, the disciplines that China must adhere to are, are useful. So, you know, there's this whole, this whole ridiculous debate, should the United States have let the, the world's largest country join the WTO? I mean, what would the WTO be without the world's largest country participating in it? It would be a defensive organization rather than an offensive one. Was it a satisfactory outcome? No. So what do you do? Well, you continue to put apply pressure. So the, the, the missed opportunity of the last four years was primarily due to the United States trying to go it alone and trying to negotiate uh, economic change in China using exclusively um, a, a, a range of sticks, um, negative reinforcement, negative leverage that turned out to be much too small to the problem and, 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 and not sufficiently sophisticated. By applying tariffs on China, we didn't convince Chinese companies to lobby in favor of opening up the Chinese market in specific ways. We didn't entice um, the Chinese state-owned enterprises to become more internationally minded. None of that happened. We just got a little bit of revenue, had an, an, a failed negotiation and on, on trade talks that got us kind of back to square one. So I think that the, the effort needs to be much, much more coordinated and really present China with a united front, a, a global set of rules that it cannot bend and must adhere to in its international operations. And then try and and then hope that that changes China, but not expect that it's going to change overnight, or that or that the uh, ex the rest of the world is going to be able to dictate the pace at which it changes. Yeah. Um, so 
just looking backward over the last um, four years, over the last year, um, Secretary Pompeo earlier this year uh, defined the threat of the CPP as the threat of our times. We've seen um, a number of actions the State Department has taken um, you know, against Chinese intellectual property theft, um, to, you know, define Chinese media companies as um, extensions of the CCP, uh, you know, shutting down the Houston Chinese consulate, charging it uh, with being a, a den of spies. Um, all of those actions alongside the rhetoric over the last year, um, do you guys think that any of those things have been uh, truly effective? Um, and are there specific actions that you think the Biden administration should roll back and, you know, uh, let in more um, Chinese students into universities or open back up that Chinese consulate in Houston? Um, I'm curious, you know, what you make of those things. Ryan? Sure. I'll uh, offer a, a thought that Kirk can build on. Um, but to, to go back to your earlier question, Kylie, to give a, a couple of examples of areas where coordinated international pressure has affected China's calculus. Uh, if you look at the, the distance that China traveled between 2012 and 2016 on climate issues, where they were in Copenhagen, where they were in Paris, it's a pretty remarkable path uh, that they traveled. Now, was all of that the result of international or American pressure? No. Uh, but it the, the international pressure concentrated China's leaders' focus on the domestic uh, risks that they, they faced if they didn't take action to address climate issues. So this sort of goes back to the point that Kurt was making about aligning incentives and finding ways to influence Chinese behavior. Uh, Ebola response uh, in Africa, uh, we forget about this, but that, that was the last major uh, fear of a, a global pandemic. And China reluctantly, uh, but eventually stepped up to the plate and uh, contributed, which was a a departure from their previous posture on, on such types of transnational challenges. Similarly, I think a case could be made with Iran. Uh, you know, China and Iran have a relationship, a longstanding relationship. China uh, imports oil from Iran, but China was, uh, you know, through a certain degree of peer pressure, uh, brought along uh, to play a constructive role uh, back when the P5 plus one negotiations were occurring. So I just put that on the table to, you know, provide a little bit of context to how, uh, you know, there are precedents that, uh, that could be built on and, and drawn from. To your proximate question about the last year or the last four years, I think the Trump administration has done us all a service in a couple of respects. Uh, first of all, um, President Trump and his team have raised awareness in the United States and around the world about the challenge that China poses to all of us and our interests and our values. Uh, secondly, uh, the Trump administration has shaken things up. Uh, they have opened up enormous space for innovative new thinking on how to deal with and uh, address challenges posed by China. We have moved beyond the playbook that, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans sort of pass back and forth to each other for, for 40 years. And third, they have tested the proposition, as Kurt was indicating, uh, that you can change China by imposing intense unilateral pressure. Uh, we've run that experiment now for four years, and it failed. Uh, China did not bend to our will uh, under the weight of tariffs uh, or other economic pressure. Uh, China, the Chinese Communist Party has not collapsed under the weight of insults uh, from Mike Pompeo or others. And, you know, we've sort of, we've found the outer boundaries of how much unilateral pressure can affect uh, some of their calculus. Um, 
And, you know, I would say by the Trump administration's own acknowledgement, uh, the strategy that they have pursued has shown its limits. Uh, Secretary Pompeo and others talk often about how China's behavior is getting worse and worse as time goes by. Well, that's an interesting acknowledgement of, uh, of the real results of these efforts. So just to go back to where I started, I, I do think that there is space that has opened up for, for new thinking on how to deal with China. And I hope that we collectively as a community and also the incoming administration, you know, take up that opportunity to, to advance some new ideas. Yeah, if I could just supplement that, I think it's important to um, uh, acknowledge the identification of the problem as a real big step forward. Uh, and then but the, then the steps kind of went beyond that to uh, letting essentially rhetoric drive policy rather than be a derivative of, 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 of policy. So, you, Kylie, you noted like closing a consulate. What is that? I mean... Did that accomplish anything? No, it closed, and everyone knew it would, closed a U.S. consulate. Um, is that a good thing from the perspective of the United States to have one fewer consulate in China and, 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 and then scatter the espionage activities that were taking place in Houston around the remaining consulates or other locations in the United States so that they're harder to track? No. So why would one do that? Only for rhetorical purposes or de demonstration purposes. So I think it's important for us to, to get past um, policy to support rhetoric and actually think um, about consistency with, with uh, clearly defined interests and, and act accordingly and also activity that's consistent with our values. So sanctioning China over Xinjiang? Yeah, you betcha, why not? I mean, that's an extraordinarily egregious activity taking place out there. Um, the cost to the United States is low. Does it change China? No, but it's a, some good, a potent, well-targeted and justifiable demonstration of concern about that issue that might lead other countries to do the same, uh, or at least say the same, if not uh, conduct sanctions themselves. So I think that there just needs to be uh, a, a recognition that these various tools uh, have a certain amount of reach and, and are not in, in and of themselves a, a policy. And, 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 and a more effective approach is, is, is not strategic patience in the sense of we're just going to let China do what it wants to do. Not at all. But rather, again, focusing on rules, norms, and allies and, and constructing issue by issue um, coalitions of the willing to, to maintain support and expand uh, American values around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and as you, you know, you lead into, I think, um, a good another topic of conversation here, um, which is, you know, America leading and, you know, being the leading democracy in the world. And one thing that the Biden administration has committed to do is this, you know, summit of democracies um, in its first year. The subtext of that. Um, obviously is no China, uh, no Russia, right? Um, so from your guys' perspective, um, you know, being at the NSC, 
being an ambassador in the region. Um, how does a summit like that actually turn into an effective uh, discussion? Does it have to have a conversation that is specifically about uh, Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs or about uh, Chinese uh, inability to um, to allow North Korea sanctions to be effective. Um, are those topics that are discussed or um, do you more broadly talk about the efficacy of democracies and steer clear of um, China's inability to, you know, follow uh, to be a democracy in the world? I'll, I'll jump in on that. I, I think this a, a summit about democracy is a great idea, as you're implying in the second part of your question and and getting uh, like-minded leaders together to talk about the importance of democratic values, human rights, um, uh, uh, and uh, and the appropriate way for for countries to conduct internal and external governance affairs is is absolutely a valuable thing to do. If it becomes a club, then you get into the problem that many people pointed out about like who's in the club and who's not, because there's a lot of marginal characters um, in this whole question about who's a democracy and who's not. And then you start spend all your time focusing on who's in and who's out. So if you do it about democracy rather than of democracies and somehow you define who's a democracy by letting them come or countries self-define that they don't care by not showing up, that's a problem. So I think just having a meeting about democracy would make more sense. And then and then to the degree that it cannot be about finger pointing, but about self-improvement, then you avoid the trap of whataboutism. Because if you spend the whole time saying Russia is blah, 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 China's blah, 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 then everyone like starts pointing figures back. Well, well, you know, such and such country showed up at that and they're not consistently de democratic in their governance or they've done various bad things too. And then you lose the message. That would be my approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think Kurt put out some sound ideas, Kylie. I, I would just offer that there, I think there are a couple of really big questions that uh, whoever is tasked with organizing this event will have to grapple with. Uh, the first is who to invite. Uh, you know, in as Kurt was indicating, there are uh, some countries, particularly in, I'm thinking about Asia, but there are countries in Asia that are sort of um, salty democracies. Uh, they're dem democratic in name, but uh, some of their character and actions isn't always uh, reflecting democratic spirit. There are other countries in Asia that uh, are not purely democratic in the process sense, but basically support the, the principles that I think the Summit for Democracy is seeking to advance. So they're going to have a, a difficult question with where do you draw the boundaries of inclusivity? Uh, the second big challenge that they're going to have to work through is what you were just talking about. Is this a summit against uh, North Korea, China, and Russia, or is it a summit for advancing principles that, uh, that are broadly shared? And then the, th the third big issue is just the scoping question. Um, my, my bias is always towards having a narrower set of concrete actions that we're trying to drive towards rather than sort of some big amorphous ambitious enterprise that, uh, that serves as this Christmas tree that everyone hangs ornaments on. Uh, but to the extent that, uh, that the organizers are able to really focus it on things like human rights, rule of law, um, addressing kleptocracy, things like this that have sort of concreteness to them, I think that the, the greater the likelihood of this, this project gaining momentum. Okay, so you, you seem to echo um, Ambassador Tong on that, which is, you know, it's a big question as to how they um, approach that. 
Um, I, I'm curious um, from your guys' perspective, when you look at the wide range of threats that China poses um, to the U.S., be economic, um, be espionage, uh, be values, all of that, um, how you uh, reflect on the Trump administration and their ranking of those threats and, you know, where they may have um, done a good job at focusing on per perhaps, you know, the economic threat. Um, and I would like to hear your thoughts on uh, the Trump-China trade deal um, and where you think the Biden administration will perhaps differ on ranking those uh, threats posed by China. And go ahead. Well, uh, it's it's a big, tough question. Um, I think that the, the way that you enter into that conversation depends upon where you start. If you view China as a sort of cosmic, ideological, and philosophical challenger in which there will only be a winner and a loser, and, uh, and we have to prevail, then it's going to lead you down a, a certain path. If, if you accept the view that the United States and China are going to exist in the international system as the two largest, uh, you know, most heavily resourced powers in the, in the world, it takes you down uh, a, a different path. Um, I, I tend to support what Kurt was saying a moment ago, that the United States and China are engaged in a long-term competition. Uh, it's a competition where the United States and China have a sort of a different set of assumptions and a different bet. Our bet is that our system of government and governance is the best system for unlocking the potential and realizing the ambitions of our people. And, and the Chinese have a different view. They think that their system uh, will, over time, prove to be uh, uh, the strongest, most resilient, the most capable of uh, accreting power uh, in the international system. And, you know, we won't know the answer to this for decades. Uh, it's going to be a long-term systems challenge and, uh, where, you know, let the best system prevail. I, I will tell you where I'll put my money and that's on ours. Um, but to the, to the broader question, Kylie, which you were are driving towards, which are China's ambitions. I really think that it's a two-part question. The first is how does China define its ambitions? And then the second is how likely is China to achieve them? And this is, you know, this is an issue on which there is not consensus in the China watching community. There's an intense and ongoing debate. Uh, so I won't pretend to, uh, to give you a definitive answer, but I'd be happy to provide a perspective uh, if it's useful after Kurt jumps in. Yeah, I, the, um, I'm not sure there's, personally, my view is that the economic threat is the most significant one in the near term. Um, but the, the, the economic threat, security threat, values threat, um, all of them need to be addressed and, and, and dealt with using the, the right tools and the right positioning in order to, to project American power and, and, in in positive ways. The, I, I would hesitate to, to say that there's any need to establish a pecking order among, among uh, the various issues and, and doing so can often lead you in the direction of policy mistakes by like, for example, I was talking to someone um, yesterday about the North Korea situation. Last thing you'd ever want to do is say, well, if China does what's probably in its own interest um, to uh, help the rest of the of the region in dealing with the North Korean threat, that then they should get some quid pro quo for that, 
on on other issues. So so ranking and 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 categorizing um, can be a a, a, um, a treacherous exercise. Um, Ryan, do you want to add to that, or can I uh, jump off of something that the ambassador said? No, I would. The only thing I would add is a brief addendum is that for a long time there was a effort in the U.S.-China relationship to keep issues separated, to keep the lanes sort of demarcated. And uh, President Trump, when he was uh, addressing the North Korea issue, he sort of blurred those lines. He said, if China does me a solid on North Korea, I will take it easy on them on trade issues. That was that was a significant moment. It was a departure from the way that the, the relationship had been managed for a long period of time. And it resulted in sort of this jumbled knot uh, of issues that became very difficult to untangle. Um, Ambassador, because you um, pointed to the economic threat as as perhaps um, the greatest one posed by China, I would like to take the opportunity to just kind of touch upon um, the TPP and President Trump's phase one trade deal. Obviously, you know, I'm not sure if everyone watching knows, but you are one of the architects of um, the TPP. You also worked on the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement. So, um, you're kind of the best person to discuss this with. Um, is there any um, upside to ditching Trump's phase one trade deal with China uh, when the Biden team comes in and trying to rehatch, obviously, you know, a new version um, of the TPP? So I don't think those two are connected. The the um, the phase one deal was um, there was nothing wrong with it. It just it the 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 um, the outcome in terms of what we got in phase one um, is is incomplete um, given the amount of leverage which was applied uh, through 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 tariffs. I think from the perspective of the United States, we haven't gotten enough yet. I think that's why the tariffs are still on, and that's why um, uh, President-elect Biden has said he's he's probably not going to take them off for a while. Um, that I think is a separate. Um, tactical discussion from the TPP. There, there was nothing. The, the agenda that that um, USTR Lighthizer put forward in through the 301 report was an, a very appropriate set of demands on China um, for reform of its of its uh, syst- economic system on a structural basis. Very ambitious requests. Um, not surprising that that China didn't. Um, uh, sign up, but they they discussed it a lot, and and it was also consistent with the the agenda that was in the bilateral investment treaty discussions with China for for a number of years before that. Those are the that having that list of particulars that we need uh, to see from China or we want to see from China is important to have out there. The whole TPP question, and um, you know, nice of you to say I'm architect of TPP. It's like an architecture firm, right? Where you have a few thousand people designing a building, but um, and I might have helped with the pipes or or, or the entranceway, but the no the, building without the pipes. Yeah, pipes are important. Um, but the the, the 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 I would be very surprised to see the United States jump back into TPP in the short term, just because the Congress isn't there and it hasn't been. Um, re-explained to the American people in a way that they would would re, uh, understand and translate the personal confidence that most Americans have that trade is good for them into confidence in their government to get them a good deal. The the 
the reason why TPP was was both Clinton and Trump walked away from TPP was that they sensed that the American people didn't trust the U.S. government to negotiate a good deal, um, and and the deal had gotten in, under so much attack. It wasn't about the particulars of it, per se. So what do we do in that context? It's political reality in the U.S. that that our hands are a bit constrained. I think we take the parts of TPP or the issues that matter most to the United States and find ways to participate in, again, coalitions of the willing, coalitions of like-minded um, economies that can uh, make progress on those. So say, for example, subsidies. The proper venue for that would be both the WTO and regionally to try and reach agreement among um, nations of, of the, the Indo-Pacific where China has the biggest impact to establish rules that, that would uh, make constrain China's ability to use subsidies to, to assist its presence in the region. Um, technology. In that case, it's more a question of maintaining a technological gap with China on, on key items. So it's probably a different set of players who has the technology that we, that we don't want China to, to steal or be able to steal or, or develop as quickly on its own. Um, for purely military and strategic reasons. So figure out who those countries are and then figure out ways to work together. I don't think we're going to create, recreate the Wassenaar system or, or um, the, the degree of, of coordination that took place during the Cold War because the lines aren't drawn as clearly. And it's probably not necessary to do so. We want China to participate in the international economy. We just want them to always be five years behind on, on AI, on semiconductors and the like. Figure out ways to do that countries that need to participate and do it on and on and on down, down the, the list of issues. That to me is, is the right um, way to, to use uh, American diplomatic strength and energy uh, as opposed to trying to join one of these clubs that uh, where you make huge effort to get to create an agreement. And at the end of the day, the, the bottom line outcome may just be a set of compromises. Ryan, do you want to add anything to that? I, I mean, I think that Kurt laid it out exceptionally well. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would uh, challenge him on is the idea that he was only in charge of the uh, plumbing and wiring of the, the building that was built. Uh, Kurt, as you indicated, played you know played a very important role on a lot of those discussions. Um, I, I also think that you know the notion that the United States is going to separate itself from China and wall China off into angry isolation. Um, as seductive as it may be sort of conceptually and intellectually, practically speaking, it's just not an available option. China accounts for nearly 20% of the global economy, and um, that, that share uh, will continue to grow. And as China you know, moves up the, the value chain, its demand for services where the United States has a comparative advantage likely will grow as well. Uh, so you know, asking uh, American firms to sort of saw off their arm uh, is, is a big ask. And, and I, I don't see, just practically speaking, how that would play out. Um, and just to button up, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, to button up this aspect of um, the conversation. Um, Kurt, you talked about, you know, re-explaining um, the TPP to the American people. Um, it seems as if, you know, the incoming uh, national security advisor, um, Jake Sullivan, who 
you know, is, is very well respected in the international community, but has also been, um, you know, as far as I understand it in the, in the Biden team focus on the domestic side of policy as well. Um, he may be, uh, well positioned to, um, lead such an effort, you know, where you kind of re-explain, um, foreign policy and trade um, to the American people because he's been studying, you know, how the American people view um, these issues. Um, what do you think of that? And, you know, in terms of um, putting uh, time and effort into uh, things such as this, which are complicated issues that you have to explain to the American people, um, should trade uh, fall at the top of that list? Yeah, well, that's a that's an extraordinarily complicated set of questions and issues around the American political economy, right? So, my personal view is that the the U.S. economy has performed well over the last couple of decades, but the the um, for a lot of Americans, they do not feel economically secure that their, their grip on their job is tenuous. So even if they might have seen uh, uh, an increase in their, their bottom line take home, and they might've been able to save a little bit, and they may have recovered from the 2008, 2009 self-imposed financial crisis, they're still worried. And that that then, because of, and, and it has to do with the, the way that jobs are, are created and destroyed so quickly in our economy these days. Um, and that then creates distrust in ideas that that are, can be easily portrayed as making their their position, their economic household position, more vulnerable um, by opening up the United States to more competition. Um, even though, when, if you ask most Americans, can the U.S. win in economic competition? Many are quite confident that it can. They just don't trust the government to set the rules that will help them accomplish that. So I think it's going to take a while for the U.S. to get back on its feet with respect um, to trade policy. And the path to doing so probably goes through important efforts to create confidence in people's household abilities to deal with dynamic change in the economy. What is that? Education, right? Healthcare is important, probably not as important as education. Um, some of these ideas being thrown around about, about helping community colleges become important parts of economic restructuring resilience in local communities are brilliant ideas. They need to be put to use. And if people see that that kind, which should be bipartisan in nature, because the same people that were voting for President Trump feel the same way as the ones that were voting for Bernie. And, that, and they're, they're doing that for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we can create structures that, that, that provide uh, people some sense of confidence that if their, their employer or their line of work goes away, that, that they, can, they can bounce back, then they might be more willing to let the government take a chance on, on promoting further dynamic change in the economy by being more globalized. And I realize that's a little bit conceptual, but but yeah. I think that's actually where we are. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with what Kurt's saying. And I I think the incoming team does as well. Uh, if you look at what the president-elect is talking about, uh, when he talks about these trade issues, he talks about the need to first 
reinvest in the United States, um, you know, developing human capital. And that includes things like childcare and elder care, as well as community colleges, universities, et cetera. Uh, he talks about infrastructure. He talks about increasing funding and research and development as the, the starting point in the baseline before we are able to move into a discussion about trade issues. So I think in his own ways, he is sort of reflecting what Kurt is describing of the need to address these systemic issues at home before there will be any space for a broader discussion about uh, reorienting trade policy. Yeah, it'll, it's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, in which avenues uh, they find the opportunities to to follow through on on some of their ideas here, which uh, we know they've been studying for the greater part of the last few years. Um, so I'm sure um, some of that will come to fruition pretty soon, which I, I know we're all excited to see. Um, I want to shift to Taiwan briefly before we um, see if there are any questions from the audience that we can turn to. Um, and Ryan, uh, given um, the role you have played in U.S.-Taiwan relations, particularly at the NSC, um, and pieces that you have recently written, um, uh, casting a positive uh, tone about the future of U.S.-Taiwan relations and, and what may come to fruition um, in the Biden administration. Um, you know, I think, you know, you, you wrote, I just want to read one of the lines, um, Taiwan will be viewed as a partner to be valued, not a card to be played in competition with China. And you're talking about um, by the Biden team there. Um, how how has the Trump administration um, perhaps uh, played that card too heavily in using them uh, tri to triangulate against China and, and to what detriment um, has that come to the relationship um, at, on the whole? Well, uh, I don't want to, you know, sound overly partisan, and I don't want to be very critical of the Trump administration's approach to Taiwan. I think that it's been very well-intentioned. Uh, they have wanted to strengthen ties with what they view as their friends and partners in Taiwan. And I hope that over time, Taiwan remains an issue that is sort of immune from partisanship. But to try to be responsive to your question, Kylie, um, the United States in, in recent years has taken a series of very visible actions to express support for Taiwan, and Taiwan has been the recipient recipient of the retaliation from China, not the United States. So we've seen that through uh, China poaching diplomatic partners from Taiwan. We've seen it through increasing military coercion uh, around Taiwan. Uh, the, the level of visible pressure on Taiwan has just as a observable fact gone up uh, significantly in recent years as uh, the level of visible public support for Taiwan has risen in the United States. Now, I actually am of the view that China is, in a sense, shooting itself in the foot with these actions, um, both with what it has done in Hong Kong, and Kurt can speak uh, deeply to this, but also with the level of aggressiveness with which it has tried to pressure and coerce Taiwan. It is sort of feeding a perception inside Taiwan that only bad things come from China. And, uh, and it, is, it is sort of diminishing and, and tarnishing uh, China's image inside Taiwan and, uh, you know, undermining any perception that, that China has attraction uh, in Taiwan. It also is driving Taiwan in a direction that it, uh, it feels like it needs to move closer to the United States to um, increase its security against the threat that it perceives uh, from the mainland. 
So across the board, my view is that China is undermining its own long-term goals uh, with the, the actions and responses it is uh, taking. And it's just simply weakening its positive attraction inside Taiwan. Um, Ambassador Tong, do you, do you want to add to that? I mean, I know that obviously, you know, living in the region, um, you've seen uh, the progression of Taiwan over the last few decades. Um, any other insights that you think are important to take into consideration? I would just add one point that that the um, Taiwan's a lot of smart people there, and they think very, very carefully and seriously about their relationship with the United States, with the rest of the region, and with China. And so I, I would like to see us um, talk to those people a lot and listen and listen to what they say about what they think is the right um, mix of of reinforcing the relationship with the United States and others and, and uh, risk-taking vis-a-vis China. Because um, there, there is a path to forward there. I think the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is an important one and can be strengthened. I'm personally a fan of doing more on the economic front, um, which is not purely a um, zero-sum kind of equation um, vis-a-vis Taiwan's relationships with the, the mainland, but rather create more options and more resilience for the Taiwan economy. Um, and other steps of that, of that along those lines that don't necessarily create, create more risk or a, 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 um, uh, a flare up, which, um, because I, I just don't trust China to do, the, uh, to always do. I think they would probably, I got a little bit of sense that China wouldn't make a huge mistake on Taiwan, but there's always that possibility. We don't need to, to be pushing them in the direction of doing something stupid. Got it. Um, all right. I'm going to look at what questions we have in the queue um, from folks now and see, um, see what we can dive into from folks who are listening. Um, okay. So, here is one question um, from Michelle Schacht. Um, please address Americans' perception of job security related to intellectual property enforcement. Um, uh, sorry, one second. Um, uh, intellectual property enforcement, antitrust, um, tech monopoly regulation, reform of DMCA, Section 230, um, as an economic priority for the Biden administration. Um, so I think Ambassador Tong, that's probably a good one for you to dive into just because you specifically talked about 230. Uh, well, that's a lot of different issues. Yeah. The, uh, and some of them are, they're not all consistent with one another. I think it, it's really important to, you know, intellectual property is, is, is property and uh, it's, easier to steal intellectual property than it is to steal other types of property. And it needs to be defended and enforced and there needs to be strong ways of doing it. Um, very, you know, working in that area should always be a high priority for a, a idea-based innovative economy like the United States. And so that should certainly be a high priority. There are, are really complex issues around, around um, data governance um, antitrust 
and the questions about how the how the uh, internet and e-commerce should be regulated and managed. I'm not sure whether we want to get into those today. I think that in a in a in a China context, um, it's it's very important to recognize that China um, unilaterally has led uh, us into a situation where much of the internet economy and e-commerce um, are separated uh, by China, not by not by us, and and that that's created uh, an ecosystem, a separate ecosystem within the Chinese economy that that in some ways is just kind of irrelevant to the United States in some ways could become a, a, a concern or a threat to the United States. And I think that needs to be watched really, really closely um, and, uh, and, and, you know, appropriate action taken. I think the biggest emphasis in the short term should be around ideas of data governance and, and the fundamental concept of making sure that the internet is as unfettered as possible in, in its ability to share ideas and information um, and, and keep China isolated. Currently China is quite isolated in the way the approach that they take to the, to the, to the internet economy. I think we should keep them there. Okay. Uh, forgive me for playing popcorn, but we are going to go back to Taiwan for a second. Um, this is a question from Mike Nelson from Carnegie. Um, Taiwan has been the target of intense cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns from China. In response, Taiwan's digital minister, Audrey Tang, has led some very innovative efforts to debunk propaganda. We have seen the impact of Russian and Chinese influence campaigns in the U.S. What can we learn from Taiwan? Ryan, let's go to you for that. Well, I, I think it's a great question. I think there's a lot we can learn from Taiwan. Um, the, the Chinese were hoping to influence uh, the direction of the last presidential election away from President Tsai. Uh, they failed. President Tsai won by a commanding uh, lead. And, uh, and part of that was because uh, Audrey Tang and her team were so effective at rapidly responding to these incidents of, of disinformation and attempts to try to sow confusion uh, within Taiwan society. So my hope, uh, you know, we were talking about the Summit for Democracy before. Uh, another platform is the Global Cooperation and Training Framework, which is a platform where Taiwan is able to share its expertise with other countries around the world. Taiwan is at the leading edge uh, on dealing with these issues, and we should be encouraging them to, to share the best practices that they've developed with, uh, with, with many countries, because it's not just Taiwan and the United States that are having to contend with these problems. Um, okay. Um, I think that's, I think that's sufficient. Um, going back to questions from the audience, um, Christina gave us this one, um, following up on what you said, Ambassador Tong, um, about how China has been vectoring differently, uh, during the Trump administration. Um, can you detail, you know, specifically what you mean by that? How have they been vectoring differently? Yeah, and if, if if I gave the impression that the, that China has been changing direction because of the Trump administration, that's that wasn't my intention. Um, uh, China, I think, you know, essentially since the time that 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 uh, Xi Jinping has has started consolidating power, has been moving in a direction which is, uh, in terms of internal governance, more authoritarian in nature, less open to um, open thought. Uh, and communication, and that that's had 
and consistent with that, China has become more um, aggressive in, in asserting its uh, exceptionalism and um, and its point of view internationally in in more in more aggressive ways and and attempted to use um, positive and negative leverage to to influence its external environment with much more energy um, in the last uh, you know five six seven years so the um, and that's a uh, not something that the it's not the U.S.'s fault, um, but it's just sort of a fact. Kylie, if, if I could just add to what Kurt was saying, I, you know, I, I served in the embassy in Beijing from 2008 to 2012. And one of the things that I was struck by during that period was the level of self-awareness that China had about how its actions were being interpreted and viewed uh, along its periphery and, and in the outside world. You know, many people had studied uh, what happened between Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm. They understood how uh, the youth after the Meiji Restoration grew impatiently assertive. Uh, they had studied closely the collapse of the Soviet Union. They, they were steeped in these historic lessons and committed not to repeat those mistakes. Something's happened uh, in, in the last period of years, the last decade, where that, that level of self-awareness of how alerting and alarming Chinese behavior is uh, to countries along its behavior has just, it, it's diminished. Um, and, you know, in many respects, the formula that China used to enable its rise over the course of 40 years uh, only had a few major elements. It was to steadily reform and open its economy, to institutionalize uh, policymaking and leadership su succession, to maintain a generally stable relationship with the United States, and to try to work to maintain a benign periphery. And on all of those respects, I think that a credible argument could be made that China is off track. And, um, and I, I think that speaks to the, the broader point that Kurt was laying out. Um, that's, that's really interesting um, insight from your time on the ground there. Um, uh, selfishly, um, uh, from a reporter's perspective, um, I'm trying to figure out, you know, who the, uh, Trump, t uh, sorry, excuse me, the Biden team is going to um, put in place as ambassadors um, in these in incredibly um, important uh, roles, particularly in Beijing. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if you guys have a perspective as to what kind of person at this moment in time they need to um, put as their uh, chief of mission uh, ambassador in Beijing, Ryan? Well, I'll be curious to hear what Kurt has to say. Um, I mean, my view is that uh, the attributes that I think would be helpful for an ambassador would be uh, a certain degree of knowledge and sophistication about China, uh, its history, its ambitions, its, its uh, the cross currents that are sort of pushing China in different directions. Um, but more importantly, uh, a relationship with the president, uh, because the more that the Chinese see the ambassador as representing the, the president's views and the president's voice, the harder it is for them to discount or diminish uh, the messages that, that they're receiving. And the incoming ambassador is going to have to deliver some tough messages uh, over the course of the coming years because the, there are, as, as we've been discussing, real structural issues that are going to need to be contended with. Yeah, I would just add to that. Um, I think Ryan should do the job, but um, the... Uh, uh, leadership and, and, and uh, resilience as personal characteristics. It's a tough job in, in Beijing because you are 
um, uh, it's not a friendly environment. And there's, there's no way to charm, uh, use charm to change Chinese policy. So, uh, and you know, that's, that's the kind of thing ambassadors kind of like to try and do. Like, I'm just going to be like really convincing and really smart and really nice. And, and everyone's going to change their mind. Um, it's yeah, not going to work. So in that environment, um, having and leading a large team, a very important team of people who are uh, understanding what's happening in China and interacting with the Chinese government on specific U.S. interests. Uh, that's really important to be to be resilient and be able to to handle setbacks. I thought uh, Ambassador Brandstad, um uh, scored well in 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 that regard. Um, he, uh, you know, I think was chosen because of his pre-existing relationship with Xi Jinping as governor of Iowa. Um, and I don't think that Ambassador Branstad would say that that had a lot of impact on Chinese policy. Um, but as a person, as a person, he did a, a nice job um, keeping the information going and, uh, and, and, and executing leadership within the mission. Yeah, um, <clears throat> we didn't hear about him all that much here in Washington, but I do think that folks thought he um, did uh, a great job with a really hard um, assignment. So I appreciate it, you guys. I'm going to turn um, the conversation back to Jamil to wrap things up, um, but it's been uh, fruitful and interesting, and I really appreciate everyone tuning in. Yeah, thanks everybody to being here. Thank you, Ambassador Tong, Ryan, Kylie. A great conversation. Uh, look, obviously a critically challenging issue for us to deal with and, and an important issue. And as Ambassador Tong said and, and Ryan mentioned, look, this is a long-term thing. This is not going to be solved tomorrow. It's not going to turn completely on who we put in Beijing as the ambassador. But these are important decisions and they're important decisions to make about the trade, the economic situation going forward. So thank you all for being here. Um, if you want more information about NSI, Read our papers. Please check out our website at nsi.gmu.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Mason Natsek. Follow us on LinkedIn, uh, NSI. And uh, again, Kylie, Ambassador Tong, Ryan, thank you so much. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.